Well, we're going to speak a little bit today about the resurrection of Christ. I will let you know I started on this sermon months ago, uh, and I was not happy with it, and I never presented it. I left it sitting there in my inbox and came back and worked on it. As many of you know, I didn't obey the gospel and become a Christian until I was about 35. And part of the reason was, is I never really had anybody explain the Bible in a way that made sense to me. And one of the topics uh, that I never could really grasp or comprehend was the resurrection. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Do we know the Bible is even reliable and can I trust what was written in it? And I'm not going to go back and spend any time talking about the scriptures that we have today. Uh, I will be using the King James Version, although there are other good versions. Uh, we are studying on Wednesday night uh, how we know the Bible is accurate, going back and looking at the original texts and comparing, talking about revisions. But based on the fact that I finally came to an understanding that, yes, the Bible was inspired, and yes, I can trust what it says, I then began to get an understanding about a number of other things. And one of those was the resurrection of Christ. Now, there are a lot of different thoughts and ideas about the resurrection. I was reading an article yesterday, and the lady, uh, she was an author. She had a lot of letters behind her name. Uh, and she basically laid out an entire premise of, uh, it's interesting and it's good, but none of it can be confirmed. And, and the summary of the supposed scholarly article was, there's not really any way to know whether it took place or whether it didn't take place. And most likely it did not. Her summary was, there's not really any proof for the resurrection of Christ. But I'll tell you this, guys. Uh, for anybody who goes back and reads either historical information written at the time by his, historians in the first century or by anybody who uses their scriptures and really does some studying, what you're going to find out when you go back and you begin to look at the topic of the resurrection of Christ is it literally shook both the political and the cultural leaders of the day. It, it shook society. And again, unfortunately, the majority of people, they'll read one little passage like we just started with, <clears throat> and they'll not go back and they'll tie it all together. Uh, and that's not something that... Uh, I didn't have a class on the resurrection in school, guys. <laughs> it, it's something you have to go back and put your time in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to condense as much of it as I can out of the entirety of the Bible and try to do it in one lesson. So there is lots of evidence regarding the resurrection of Christ. Let me, let me summarize real quick. Uh, go ahead and turn on over to Mark 16, but let me summarize as you're turning there what happened after Jesus' death. So you have the Roman army captain who he goes to Pilate and he confirms to Pilate that, yes, I have checked and the one you hung on the cross named Jesus is dead. That's in Mark 15, 44 through 45. I want you to remember this guy is a Roman soldier. Not only that, he's a captain. This guy's killed a lot of people, and he knows the difference between a dead person and a live person. As a matter of fact, his life depends on it. That's his job. And so he comes to Pilate, and he assures, yes, the one that was on the cross is dead. And they, I'm not going to go back and spend a lot of time on it, but they went through and literally even pierced him to make sure he was dead. And so you've got the Roman army captain who comes to a political leader and says, yes, the one that was on the cross, he's dead. And you then have this, this man, he's a Jew. You've got Joseph of Arimathea. He comes and he actually asks if he can take the body and he can prepare it for burial. What am I saying? Well, the Roman soldier was correct. Yes, he was in fact dead. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea coming and asking for the actual body. That's covered over in Mark 27, 58, Luke 23, 51 through 53, and Mark 15, 45 through 46. Uh, for anyone who's maybe visiting or if you guys don't use these, I always put all my notes in here unless I just add something on the fly. So this is going to get you close to everything I'm covering. That way you know if I make a mistake, like the date, you notice the date. If I make a mistake, let me know so I can fix it. But that's where that's covered. He then comes and he gets the body. He takes the body, he wraps the body in a new, lim new linen, and he places it in a new tomb, which actually was prophesied. That's covered in Mark 15, 45 through 46, and Matthew 27, 57 through 60. We also then have the women. They are standing back. You have Mary Magdalene, and there were others that were there. They're watching actually where the body was placed in the sepulcher. And I agree with you, that's a tough word. The body, they're watching where the body is placed there within the sepulcher, so they know where the body is at. 
And that is covered in Mark 15, 40 through 47, and Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. And I point that out that, yes, the women were standing back watching where he was taking the body. And I say that because if you read some of the scholarly articles, they say, well, they might have gone to the wrong tomb. And when they rolled the, the stone back, they didn't see a body. And they went, well, he's risen. But the thing is, they just went to the wrong tomb. No, they know exactly where the body's at. They're standing back watching where the body is being taken after it's being prepared. Follow along with me, and we'll pick up in Mark 16, verses 1 through 6. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. Sounds like they know exactly where they're going, doesn't it? And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment. And they were frightened. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. Now, I've spoken about the resurrection before, and there's a lot of details that I cannot go back and cover. For example, the folded napkin and all the other things that are taking place here. But here's the thing. The resurrection, as is taught by many, to either be a lie or to be a, a myth or a hoax or that is based on little evidence. But the truth of the matter is, is when you begin to go back and you begin to look at the actual facts, not only recorded within our scriptures, but the, even supported by first century historians, you will find that, as I mentioned earlier, this event literally shook to the core both the political leaders and the cultural leaders. Now, that is because we learn over in Matthew 28, 11-15, that when those who had been appointed to guard the tomb, when they report back to the chief priests everything that has happened, right? The stone's rolled back, the body's not there. The chief priests say, you know what? Let's assemble everybody together and figure out what we're going to do here. And they decide that they are literally going to offer them a large sum of money. <laughs> Here's some money. When anybody comes and says, where's the body? Tell them, hey, we fell asleep and the disciples of Jesus came and stole the body while we slept. Now let's pause on that for just a second. How would these Roman guards know that the body was stolen by his disciples when they slept if they were sleeping? They wouldn't, and anybody could see through. This never caught on. They, try, they tried. This, this did not catch on, as a matter of fact. But they said, listen, tell anybody that asks that they came and they stole the body. And then they went back and they said, listen, if this actually gets back to Pilate uh, and Pilate hears about it, we'll take care of it and we'll make sure that you guys don't get into any trouble. So now all of a sudden you've got Jewish authorities bribing Roman guards saying, don't tell anybody what happened. And if they do ask, lie and say that their disciples came and they stole the body. Now, the resurrection of Jesus caused a number of problems, not only for the Roman authorities, but also for the Jewish leaders. Uh, and it would have been worth just about anything for them to go back and to disprove it. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of really good movies on that actually taking place. And if you find them, uh, I would spend some time. They're actually very interesting of what they were thinking between the Roman authorities and the Jews. Neither the Jewish leaders nor the Roman authorities could give the body. And you've got people going around saying he's, he's, he's been risen from the dead, and the Jewish leaders are saying, no, he wasn't risen from the dead. And the Roman authorities are saying, no, he wasn't, he wasn't risen from the dead. And the question is, is where is the body? Where's the body? And the rapid spread of Christianity begins to take place throughout the first century, and it is fueled by the fact that you have a number of witnesses, a number of them. As a matter of fact, 25 years later, over in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul literally says that there were 500 that saw him and that the majority of them are still living today. What's Paul saying? I'm giving you a a personal testimony. I've seen the risen Savior, but not only my, myself, over 500 people have seen Him, and guess what? The majority of them, they're still alive. He's saying basically, if you don't believe me, go ask them. You can confirm exactly what I'm saying. There were over 500 people who saw our risen 
Lord and Savior. So go ask Him. Now let me focus on that for just a second as we talk about the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. Now it's con it is confirmed by numerous witnesses. I want you to notice what Luke writes. I'm going to go over to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Luke writes, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. Now he's referring back to the book of Luke. And if you've never read the two, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, written both by the same author, can be broke down like this. He writes the first letter to Theophilus, and he says, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus. And then he does the entire account talking about Jesus, who he was, why he came, what he did. And then when he's dead, it picks up in the book of Acts, where you have what happened right after his death and then taking place with the early church. He, in essence, writes two letters to Theophilus. One, here's all the information you need to be a Christian. Then you got the book of Acts. Here's what you need to know now that they've killed our Lord and Savior. And so when you read the book of Acts, follow it right up, or follow up, read the book of Luke, follow it up with the book of Acts. But he says, This former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up. So that's what he's going to cover in that first book. After that, he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom also, check this out, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And let me focus on that for just a second. For forty days, forty day period, you have people seeing our Lord and Savior risen from the dead. And eleven of those accounts are recorded within our New Testament. And certainly there are more not recorded. But let me break it down this way. Guys, if I robbed a bank multiple times over a 40-day period and had over 500 witnesses that saw me do it, what do you think is going to happen when I show up in court and the judge says, bring the witnesses forward? And they say, well, yeah, he literally came to this bank every day for like 40 days and he just kept robbing the bank. 40 days in a row he did it, right? And you have another witness comes up and says, well, I didn't see him do it on, on all those days, but I saw him on this day and this day, or I saw him that day. After 500 witnesses, what do you think they're going to do with me? And put me in jail because the testimony is valid. Over 500 witnesses over a 40-day period. And yet people will they'll read the resurrection account and they'll say, that's not reliable. It's not reliable. Certainly it is. And that's exactly what Luke says here. He talks about the fact that over a 40-day period, there's over 500 witnesses. Paul refers back to it. Paul even seeing himself. It wasn't just the eyewitness accounts. There were lots of eyewitness accounts, but you have to remember in the time of Jesus' day, who are we talking about primarily? They haven't reached out to the Gentiles yet. This is a message for the Jews. Now, it's going to go to the, to the Gentiles, and Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he carries this message. But primarily, we're focused on Jews, okay? And of the witnesses, they are Jews. Guys, the resurrection of Jesus was not just confirmed by eyewitness accounts of Jews. It was it was actually confirmed prior to any of those eyewitness accounts by the prophecies. Luke says there's many infallible proofs. Now you may say, what are these infallible proofs? Well, that included the many appearances that we had after His death. It, uh, it would include the changes that we see within His disciples after His death. It would see the unanswerable question of how do you explain the empty tomb? And then how do you explain the... How do you explain the history of the church and the fact that so many people were willing to die. They were willing to die for the message that our Lord and Savior came and He rose from. People don't die for a lie. I can, guys, I would, I've told you this many times. If I ever came to the assumption that the Bible was not accurate and this was not true, I'm going back to my former life. I'm, I'm telling you that right now. Because logically that makes sense. And logically when you begin to break the Bible, the Bible down and you begin to study it, you, you can understand it's, it's laid out in such a way as to confirm everything that it's saying. And that lines up with even the historical accounts that we have given. Guys, before Jesus' resurrection and before we had eyewitnesses, what we did have were the Scriptures. And we had these Scriptures which were pointing to the fact that there was a Messiah who was coming. And this Messiah was going to die. And He was going to shed His blood on the cross. There were a number of prophecies going back and, and that pointed to the fact of a resurrection. But here was the problem. Only those who truly loved the Word or those who had a very 
real concern for the Word of God or those who were willing to sit and to study the Word of God could actually discern what was taking place. And we touched a little bit on this uh, this morning uh, within Bible study. The mystery was not understood. They didn't understand the idea of the church, the idea of Jew and Gentile within the church. From our perspective today, we can go back and we can very easily, or much easier, understand as we begin to look at the Scriptures and we begin to see what was prophesied and then we begin to see how it was carried out. And so for us, we have it much easier. All of this, though, as we begin to look at it, and I'm going to give you some information here, they provide to us and prove the divine inspiration of the Bible. And let me just give you a couple of those. I normally like to read Isaiah 53 anytime I cover the resurrection, but if we go back to Isaiah 53, it describes very clear. This is 800 years before Jesus was ever born. It covers very clearly the death that awaited our coming Savior. And after describing all of his sufferings there in Isaiah 53, he says this, Isaiah 53, 8, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. But that's not it. It goes on and it continues to promise this in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now granted, just reading a couple of passages from Isaiah doesn't give the, the, the full picture. And if you've never read Isaiah 53, go back and read just how much detail is given about what they will do to our Lord and Savior. Guys, this prophecy can only be understood in terms of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, contrary to those that teach, and you'll hear this taught by some, they say, well, Jesus became the biggest sinner on the cross, and God turned His back on Him and couldn't look at Him. That is not what the Scriptures teach. Look what Isaiah records in Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now again, this can clearly only be understood in terms of Jesus and his shedding of the blood on the cross for man's sin and his resurrection. And you may say, well, how did he bear, how did he bear man's sins? Let me just give you one passage before I move on. Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And all the way back in Isaiah, you've got them pointing to the fact there's a Messiah coming. There's a Messiah coming, and here's how they're going to treat Him, and here's how they're going to kill Him. And He is doing this to justify the sins or the iniquities of mankind. And we also read of the graphic portrayal of Christ's unspeakable suffering by crucifixion, and I don't have time to go back and spend a lot of time on crucifixion, and I wasn't planning on it, but if you don't know much about crucifixion, in the way that they, when they put your hands out on the cross like this, and they nail you, and then they have your feet crossed with the, the stake through there, the purpose of the feet being like that, and you'll see a block behind your feet, is so that the weight of the body, it naturally hangs down, and as it hangs down, it presses on the lungs, and so the only way you would be able to breathe is early on as you're hanging there, you could push up with your feet, and get a breath, and then hang again. But as you get weaker and weaker and weaker, all of that there is putting force on your lungs, and it's causing you to slowly die. Okay. At the time that these prophecies were written, they didn't kill people like that. Nobody was crucifying people on crosses in the way that the Romans do. Right? The Romans didn't invent a whole lot, but they perfected virtually everything, and one of those was how to kill people. Okay? So when most of our prophecies regarding Christ being hung on a cross were written, they weren't even killing people like this because the Roman authorities had not come into, into place yet and hadn't, hadn't started doing this. But we read about the crucifixion of Christ even all the way over in Psalm 22. And I didn't go back and um, put a whole lot of information on Psalm 22, but for anybody who's not studied it, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 when He actually says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 as He hangs on the cross. 
and the prophecies that you have recorded there. Listen to, listen to Psalm 22, 14, and 15. The same psalm that Jesus actually quotes from as He's hanging on the cross. He's pointing them back to the very prophecy that is saying, I'm going to kill my, we're going to kill the Messiah here on the cross, but He's doing it for a reason, and Jesus is pointing them back. And people hear that, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they say, look, Jesus turned His back on Him. I already showed you over Isaiah 53 that didn't happen. God saw exactly what was taking place, and Jesus is trying to point them back. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. Remember I was just talking about how He's hanging up there? My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of the earth. But that's not it. He continues on and he states this in verses 25 and 27. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever, and the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Now clearly this is only understood in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church which would spread across the entirety of the globe and people from all kindreds and all nations would be gathering together so that they could worship our Lord and Savior who died on a cross for us. And all the way back, even in the book of Psalms, they're pointing to it. Let me pause for just a second. And that lady said, guys, we've barely, we've barely touched the surface. The lady said, there's not, there's, not a whole lot of, there's not a lot of proof that this actually happened. We're being foretold it's going to happen before it ever happens. You imagine if somebody came and said, hey, there's a guy that I know. He's, he's probably going to break into your house tonight about 8 o'clock. Uh, and, and lo and behold, at 8 o'clock, he breaks into my house. And I'm thinking somebody had some foreknowledge and some foresight, right? You mean like our prophets? That's exactly what's taking place. His victorious resurrection, guys, is seen all the way back in the very first prophecy ever recorded within our Scriptures in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There he comes back and he tells Adam and Eve that although Satan's going to bruise the heel of the coming Messiah, and this, and this Messiah would be the seed of woman, this prophesied divine seed would ultimately be victorious, and He's going to defeat the wicked one. Now, I will tell you this, as the apostles began to go out and they began to preach and to teach after Jesus uh, had died on the cross, we see them going back, and even they are using the Old Testament to say, listen, yeah, this was covered all the way back from our forefathers, and they were pointing to the fact that Jesus was coming. And although I can't go back and preach the sermon on Pentecost, I'd love to, they stand up and say, and guess what? You killed him. You killed him. And you should have known better. They refer back to Psalm 16 over in Acts 2, 25-28, as he's literally preaching to the Jews in the crowd, saying, you just killed our Messiah. Acts 2, 25, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. And moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now they go back, and they, when they talk about being in the Hadean realm, and, and that they're not going to leave my body there to see corruption, his body, he wasn't going to be out of the body long enough for his body to start to decay. Within three days, he's coming back and he's going to be resurrected from the dead. And all the way back in Psalm 16, he's pointing to this. And Peter, as he's preaching, saying, you guys should have known all this. It was prophesied. Guys, the first eight verses of Psalm 16 most likely are referring to Jesus as he prays in the garden there of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest. But then we read this in Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. That word is translated correctly as the word Hades. It's not hell. Therefore, or neither, 
<clears throat> wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption? Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is full of joy. At the right hand there are pleasures forevermore. These verses are pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. And they're the ones that Peter quotes from as he's telling the Jews, yes, he came, he was the Messiah, he did all this all these miracles in front of you, and He taught you, He told you, and you guys ended up killing Him. And again, I don't have time to go back and cover Acts 2 as Peter's preaching, but if you guys recall over in Acts 2, verse 37, they said, after they were told this, they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Because they just realized it was prophesied, He was the fulfillment of it, and we killed Him. So now here's the question, what do we do? And that's when Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's another sermon for another day. I will touch on it right towards the end of the sermon. But they came to an understanding <clears throat> that, yes, it was our Messiah. Now, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 gives some insight concerning His ascension and the resurrection. And this one's really important. Listen to this one. The Lord said unto my Lord... Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, here's what's important. If you go back and actually look up the word Lord there in the original language, here's actually what it says. Jehovah said to Adonai. And you may say, what does that mean? Well, the psalmist here very interestingly uses two names of God. The one person of the Godhead said to the other person of the Godhead, what he's talking about here is God the Father speaking to God the Son. <clears throat> Guys, this verse is applied to Christ no less than five times within our New Testament. Why are the New Testament writings going back to the Old Testament and citing the Psalms? Why are they citing the prophecies? And again, they should have known that He was the Messiah. He didn't hide it from them. Towards the end, he was making it clearly seen and visible before their eyes. He shouldn't have even had to have said that he was the Messiah. And what's perhaps uh, a very similar and interesting message is seen over in Psalm 2-7, where it says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now you say, what exactly is he talking about there in Psalm 2-7? Well, interestingly enough, we know because this verse is actually quoted over in Acts 13.33. So again, you've got them coming back and citing Old Testament passages as confirmation of what's taking place. Acts 13.33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that He hath raised up Jesus again. And he says, you know how I know that? He goes back to the second psalm. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What's he saying? You as a Jew should have known better. You should have known that this was Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. You don't have an excuse. You were told, and you were told, and you were told. And yet you put Him on a cross and you killed Him. In what was perhaps the oldest book in the Bible, I believe it was, written just after the flood account, the book of Job, We've studied the book of Job, and Job asks the question that people today are still asking. Job literally asks the universal question. If a man dies, shall he live again? Job 14, 14. It's a good question. How many of you guys want something besides this life when you die? I don't want to live this life and be shoved into a hole, and that's it. That's the end of it. And Job asks the question, what else is there? After we die, do we live again? A little, a little later, as you continue to read the book of Job, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And he goes on and he says, And in my flesh I shall see God. Job 19, verses 25 and 26. How did he know that? Well, the patriarchs had that understanding from the very beginning. They didn't have full understanding, but he knew that. He knew that he had a Redeemer. He knew that he had a Mediator. Now, granted, he could tell us he knew a little bit, but he didn't have the understanding like we have today. <clears throat> I'm going to go on over to Hosea 
you've got really a, a dual prophecy taking place here. You've got a reference to the resurrection of both the nation of Israel and her Messiah in Hosea 6.2. It says, And after two days will He revive us. In the third day He will raise us up, and we shall live in His sight. And then we read in Hosea 6.6, 6, this is an interesting one, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Let me help you out a little bit on, my, on this passage. I can't spend too much time on it. Christ actually refers over to this passage in Matthew 9, 12 through 13. And if you remember the context, you've got Jesus who was hanging out with a bunch of heathen. Public, well, not heathen. Heathen as we use the term. Publicans and sinners is who he's hanging out with. And the Pharisees and the scribes were having a heart attack because why is Jesus hanging out with people like that? And Jesus refers back to this. Matthew 9, 12. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, that they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And then he says, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The sacrifice that Christ was going to make on our behalf was greater than all of the burnt offerings that could be offered together. And the act of mercy of His sacrifice that we're talking about is in perfect context with what we read here in Matthew 9, 12 through 13, where Jesus is simply conversing and spending time with those who are sinners and publicans. Why? Because He loves their soul. And this act of mercy by Jesus, He says, is greater than any sacrifice that would have been made by any of those Pharisees. Again, this all points to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice what we find over in Zechariah chapter 12, starting in verse 10. It says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Huh, these guys see who we're talking about already? And they shall mourn for him. They did then, and we do now. And as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The firstborn. We'll touch on that. The firstborn of many. The firstborn of many that will be resurrected. But he was the firstborn. And they hung him on a cross, and they killed him. And they had to. And if it wouldn't have been the sin of Adam and Eve, it would have been my sin or your sin. But Jesus still would have shed His blood on the cross for whoever that was. Clearly, that's a prophecy pointing to the death and the resurrection of Christ. There are a number of types within, this, within the Old Testament. I began to go list them all, and guys, there's no way I can cover that much stuff in a lesson, so I just wiped them out. Go back and spend time talking about Jonah and that great fish. Three days in the belly of a fish. What do you think they're talking about? There are so many prophecies, so many types, and every one of them throughout the Old Testament is pointing to the fact there's a Messiah coming, there's a Messiah coming, they're going to kill Him. They have to kill Him because man needs a perfect sacrifice. And there is no perfect lamb, but there is the perfect lamb of God. And He can be the sacrifice for our sins. Let's talk about for just a second the resurrection being key to the gospel. The first century Jew, they could have and they should have known what was coming. The fact is evident from the very rebuke that Christ gives to, do, to the two disciples as they walk together on the road to Emmaus right after His resurrection. Listen to Luke 24, verse 25. I'll read down to 27. Then He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Let me pause. What's he talking about? I just gave you a few of what the prophets had spoken, but Jesus comes back and says, you guys should have known. The prophets told you all of this years ago what was going to take place, and you should have known. He goes on, verse 26, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? What things? All the things that the prophets said were going to happen. Verse 27, and beginning at Moses, wow, all the way back in the very first five books, we have, we have prophecies of Christ. Yeah, I gave you one, Genesis 3.15, but there's plenty more. So even in the writings of Moses, all the way back, 
You've got prophets pointing to the fact there's a Messiah coming. So he starts, he says, at the beginning of Moses and all the prophets, and then he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Makes me think about the Ethiopian eunuch who asks Philip, he says, I'm reading Isaiah 53 here. Is this about the prophet or someone else? And Philip gets in there and it says he preaches unto him Jesus from Isaiah 53. They should have known. But even if they were uncertain about the meaning of the Scriptures and they couldn't understand them, they had many direct prophecies given by Christ Himself. I'm going to go on over to Matthew 16, 16. I'll read down to 22. And this is just after Peter makes his great confession where he says, Yep, you're the Lord, all right. Follow along with me. And remember, this is, this is about halfway through the ministry, a little bit after that. So... You know, we're getting close to uh, getting towards the end of his ministry. But they know this really already at the middle of his, of, of his ministry. Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered him and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus is going to build His church. One church. There's just one church, guys. That's not my opinion. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to build my church, but I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom. What are the keys to the kingdom? Well, I'm not going to go back and spend a whole lesson on that, but all the way up to Acts chapter 2, we read there's... There's, every time you see the word kingdom, it's future tense, future tense, future tense. Every time from Acts chapter 2 on, it is past tense. Okay, It's not in my notes. John says he's already in the kingdom, Revelation 1.9. We have other passages talking about being translated into the kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I'm going to build my kingdom, but I'm going to give you the keys to the church. What was that? It was the gospel. How do you get into the church? It's the gospel. Okay, But he goes on. And he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me correct that. I always correct this when I read this passage. In the Greek it says this, Whatever is bound in heaven shall be bound on earth. What is already loosed in heaven shall be loosed on earth. The apostles are not making up doctrine. It's already given, and then by inspiration they're receiving it and giving it. Okay? He goes on. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. His time has not come yet. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now let me pause. Some people might say... Now, so Jesus is telling them all this. He's going to be killed. He's going to raise from the dead. Maybe they just didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying. Is that what we find in verse 22? Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Why is he saying that? He understood exactly what Jesus was telling him. They're going to take me. They're going to persecute me. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter says, No, this is not going to happen. And Jesus has to set him straight. Don't tell me he didn't understand. He understood, but he couldn't accept it, not at first. And he wasn't the only one. They had the types, they had the prophecies, they even had the very words of Christ, and yet they couldn't comprehend the purpose behind the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus had already told them. Listen to John 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it again. Right? He didn't kill Jesus. He, he, saw, he, he sacrificed himself up there. He could have stopped it at any time. He said he could have called angels and stopped it. Jesus allowed himself. He gave himself. Verse 18, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. And I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. What is he saying? I could have stopped it at any moment. But if he would have, 
And if he wouldn't have shed his blood, there is no remission of sins. Book of Hebrews, there's no remission without the blood. Jesus had to be the perfect sacrifice. He had to shed his blood. Did he struggle with it? Of course he did. How many times did he ask his father to take that cup from him there in the Garden of Gethsemane? But he said, no matter what, thy will be done. This was the plan from the very beginning. How do I know? Because the prophecies were pointing to it the entire time. There's a Savior coming. There's a Savior coming. Yeah, we're a thousand years out, but there's a Savior coming. You guys need to be ready. And here's how he's going to die. And here's when he's come. Here's when he will come. And here's when the church will be established. Daniel chapter 4. You can understand when all this is going to take place. They should have known. And even his own disciples are struggling with it. Lord, no way. That's not what's going to happen. Whatever reasons they had for not being able to see it because of their own blindness today, man doesn't have any excuse at all. You can go down and buy you a Bible. This one was $30 or something. I don't know what it costs. You can go buy you one for $12. My last one, I think, was 12 bucks. You can get a free app on your phone. Get a good translation, whatever it is. But you can... Everybody has access to the Word of God. They didn't, have, they didn't have full access. They had the Old Testament Scriptures. They had the prophecies, and it was being played out in front of them. We have all of it right here in front of us. And so while they had some blindness, and they couldn't accept it, and they struggled... We have all the information they had plus more. And you still got people who will write articles like I read yesterday where she said, there's, there's very little evidence that supports that there might have been a resurrection. Guys, I'm only skimming. I'm skimming the Bible to show you some of the stuff in advance where the actual people are saying, this is what was recorded, this is what you see right in front of your eyes taking place. And Jesus even rebukes them and saying, you should have known better. You should have known. The fact that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ are so important is because they constitute the heart of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. And I worded that way, I worded that, that way for a very specific, specific reason. They constitute the very heart of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul tells the church in Corinth, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If you keep, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians, uh, if you, if you read 1 Corinthians and you see what Paul taught them, he taught them a whole lot more than the death, burial, and the resurrection. But it constitutes the heart of the gospel. He says, If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Let me pause. That's pretty close to what Luke writes. Now, Luke writes all about Jesus' ministry, but he covers part of this, and he's talking about Jesus and why to believe in Him. And then he follows up with the letter there of Acts and he's explaining the death, burial, and the resurrection. He was the Messiah. That's what Paul says. But guys, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 is not the entirety of the gospel as many people teach. I have people that say, well, there's no doctrine in the Bible. Uh, all you need to understand is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The word gospel, euangelion, in the Greek simply means the good news. It was the good news of Jesus, His birth, His ministry, the good news of the establishment of the church, the doctrine of the church, so when you use that word gospel, the actual word being the good news, it includes more than just the death, burial, and the resurrection. Okay? However, the gospel is the sure foundation, that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, is the sure foundation of all of those things that people need to come to believe where they accept Jesus as the prophesied Messiah who came and died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and causes them to come back and then don't want to submit, him, submit themselves to what Jesus says we ought to do. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on it, and I'm almost done, guys. I've only got a couple more passages. There's no doubt the resurrection took place. I'm skimming the Bible. Skimming, skimming, skimming. All the accounts saying, yep, your Lord and Savior is going to come, and they're going to put Him on a cross, and they're going to kill Him, uh, and He's going to rise from the dead. And then we see it carried out. And then what we have is the resurrection and obedience to baptism 
being shown going hand in hand. And you may say, what? How in the world do you go from the resurrection of Jesus to saying, I need to be baptized? Well, I'm not going to go back and read Jesus' words in Mark 16, 15, and 16, where he says you need to do this. However, let's go over and look at Paul's words in Romans 6, 3 through 5. And let's see if he ties the resurrection and baptism together. Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? What's he saying? It's a, it's a burial in water, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going back and I am doing what Jesus did. I'm killing off the old man so I can come up a new man. That's what we're talking about. That's what the context says. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. Why do we do that? He says, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Is there more to this, Paul? What are you trying to get me to understand about baptism? For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, he's already explained to us that's being buried in baptism. He says this, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Do you want to be resurrected when you die at the judgment? He says if you bury yourself in baptism, just as Jesus died and was buried, and you come up this new man, the, the likeness in your burial in water also allows you to have the same likeness of a resurrection. What's he saying? The same power that could raise our Lord and Savior is the same power that will raise you. And you may say, the resurrection doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't have to. You think I grasp all of it? I believe it 100%, but can I grasp it? I can, but I can't. What's the new body going to look like? I don't know. Does it matter? But I know that it will happen by the same power. I mentioned earlier Christ being the Son. He's the first fruits. He was the first fruits of many resurrections to come. And that's why Paul then gives this warning to anybody who would not obey the gospel of Christ. Listen to 2 Thessalonians I'm going to start in verse 7 of the first chapter. Got one passage after this. I'm almost done, guys. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel. Again, let me correct that. The euangelion, that obey not the good news. What good news? How to become a Christian, how to live as a Christian, how to die as a Christian. That's the good news we're talking about. And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Guys, to deny any portion of that good news, that gospel account, how to become a Christian, how to live as a Christian, how to die as a Christian. That is to deny the gospel, just as he says here, and it results in punishment. Let's go on over to 1 Thessalonians, my last passage. Because, yeah, he says if you don't obey the gospel, there's punishment coming. And let me say this. Jesus hung and died on a cross for us. He paid the penalty. If you don't want to accept, that, you don't want to accept payment, you don't have to. He hung on the cross for you, but you don't have to accept it. You don't have to do anything that He said. And He says here that if you don't, there's a consequence. But then He flips it, and we learn over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we as Christians should have confidence in this resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, he's talking about the faithful being dead, they're faithful Christians, will God bring with him. He's not going to forget any of them. Verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them. They've got the word prevent here. Precede them which are asleep. We're not going before them, right? If they died and we're still alive when He comes back, we're not going to go, and then they... We're all going together. We're not going to precede them, okay? He says, 
For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then He says, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. We gather together every Lord's day because we believe in a resurrection. We live faithful because we believe in a resurrection. We go out and we proclaim the gospel to other people because we believe in a resurrection. And believing in that resurrection also means we believe in consequences for those who have not obeyed the gospel. And none of us want to see anybody stand before our Lord and Savior and have to say, I don't know why I didn't do it. I don't know why I didn't become a Christian. If you're watching this online right now or if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just skimmed the Bible and I, very, I just gave you very little of the information presented prior to Jesus ever coming. And then we see it actually being played out and actually meeting the requirements of the prophecy. And we have historians who even say, yep, it all played out just like the Bible says that it did. If you're here and you heard just the little bit of information I gave, here's the question I have for you. What is preventing you from becoming a Christian? I waited way too long. I waited till I was 35. Larry, did you wait too long? And some people will never obey the gospel. But I assure you the resurrection is true. It is accurate. And it is the hope that we have as Christians that we also will be resurrected. If you're here today, that's my concern, is that you're faithful when He returns. That means either you need to obey the gospel, or you, if you're living a life of sin right now, you need to turn it around. How do I obey the gospel? It's very simple. I'm not going to go back and do a word, word for word and read, read verses or quotes. Every conversion account started like this. Somebody was talking about Jesus and who he, who he was and why He came, and they said, you need to believe. Hebrews 11.6, you need to have faith. And Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am He, you're going to die in your sins, John 8.24. They talked about sin, the consequence of sin. I've touched on some of those passages. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and the consequence is death, Romans 6.23. That's why both Jesus and Paul, and they were going around, others were saying, you need to repent of your sins, Luke 13.3 and 5, uh, Acts 17, verse 30, 31. They were confessing Christ, Romans 10.9 and 10, and every conversion account they were immersed in water for the remission of sins. As Jesus told them, Mark 16.15 and 16, Peter's preaching it on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38. He says it's a burial in water, Romans 6, 3, and 4. The old man's killed off and the new man has come up. And he says, guess what? If you're buried in the same way that he was, you're going to be resurrected in the same way that he was. That's how easy it is to become a Christian. That's all you need to do. And the Lord will add you to the church, Acts 2, verse 47. You don't sign, some, you don't sign the, the, the list and say, I'm on the list now. The Lord adds you to the church. If you're here and you're a Christian... For some reason, you've not been faithful. It's this simple. Just repent of it, turn from it, and again, be faithful again. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9, continue to walk in the light, be faithful. It says the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us. That's the hope that we have. If you're here right now and you've not been faithful, you can turn around just like that. You can be forgiven, continue to be a faithful follower of God. As I draw this to a close, if there's any way we can assist you, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.